We've come to the 10th and final episode in this series, so first and foremost, we wanted to say thank you. The sheer number of listeners has been incredible, and the feedback we've received, well, inspirational. What a journey it's been. We've traveled remotely, of course, from China to our nation's capital and lots of places in between, including many stops right here in Minnesota. We've heard from philosophers and farmers, explorers and economists, and a host of public health professionals who impressed us as much with their passion as with their expertise. Our thanks goes out to all of these generous and dedicated people. So, does this mean no more podcasts? Not at all. We're simply going to take some time to regroup and return with more podcasts about protecting and advancing everyone's health in the time of COVID-19 and always. The title of this podcast remains our focus, Health in All Matters. I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. Public health seems to be having a moment. Once again, a crisis has put it on people's radar. But will it stay there? I think COVID-19 has made it very clear, improving our collective health, our global health, absolutely needs to remain a daily priority. We simply can't allow all this death and suffering to fade into the background. We need to remember it, to learn from it, and work as hard as possible to keep it from happening again. Today is May 22, 2020, and this episode is called Wake Up Call. I'm Michael Joyce, host of this podcast, and I'm a firm believer that it's easier to make sense of the present if you understand the past. Minnesota author Kurt Brown shares that view. Kurt writes a popular history column for the Sunday edition of the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. Let me just read a little excerpt of a letter I just came across. And it says, because of that awful disease, all the towns and cities for miles around are all closed, everything but the meat markets, grocery and dry goods stores. And the letter writer goes on to say, at some places, people have to wear gauze masks when they appear on the streets. The government has closed all schools, churches and theaters. And that letter could have been written yesterday, but it was written by a woman named Laverne Roquette on October 10th, 1918. That story is included in a book Brown wrote a couple of years ago called Minnesota 1918, When Flu, Fire, and War Ravaged the State. Reading it now brings up inevitable comparisons with COVID-19. Namely, how are the two pandemics similar? And how do they differ? Some of the differences are fascinating. And let me state up front that the 1918 pandemic was caused by an H1N1 influenza virus, not a coronavirus, so direct comparisons are somewhat limited. But back to some of the other differences. In 1918, viruses were virtually unknown. ICUs and ventilators didn't exist. Nearly one-third of American doctors were off to war in Europe. And President Wilson, like most leaders of countries fighting in the war, actively censored news about the pandemic, even though he had contracted the virus himself. And then there's the similarities. The U.S. response was delayed by a couple of months. The Surgeon General at the time warned of two things. The possibility of spreading the virus even if you had no symptoms. And to be aware of charlatans pushing worthless cures. 
And with our current reopening efforts, author Kurt Brown is reminded of another similarity. You know, one of the big similarities we see is the pushback that when these public health officials try to impose some restrictions and regulations, there's always pushback like we're seeing today. At St. Paul in 1918, for example, they passed a rule that any building uh, over six stories tall, you couldn't use the elevators. Well, building and hotel owners argued and complained. Of course, the health officials said uh, spreading diseases into a crowded elevator was a bad idea. So Everywhere you turn, it seemed like there was pushback like we see today. It's worth mentioning that during the 1918 pandemic, which came in three distinct waves, with the biggest wave being in the fall of that year, Philadelphia opted to hold a war bond parade that roughly 200,000 people packed in to see. Within 72 hours, the beds of the city's 31 hospitals were full. In San Francisco, despite the chance of going to jail for 10 days and being fined as much as what in today's money would be about $1,700, skeptics formed an anti-mask league, called masks inconvenient and bad for business, and even punched holes in them so they could smoke. All this in the setting of a pandemic that killed tens of millions of people across the globe, and around 700,000 in the United States alone. Finally, in 1918, the global population was about 1.8 billion. Now it's nearly 7.8 billion. Let me state that another way. There are now roughly 7.8 billion of us on this planet who are potential hosts for zoonotic diseases. The influenza of 1918, the Black Death or bubonic plague that killed over 100 million people in the 1300s, HIV, which has killed over 30 million people, and COVID-19 are all zoonotic diseases. Zoonotic diseases are those diseases that are shared between animals and humans. I always like to use the word between because a lot of these diseases are not one way. Dr. Jeff Bender is a veterinarian and professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, who specializes in zoonotic diseases. You know, it was back in the 1960s that at the time we actually declared infectious diseases as no longer a problem, that we had really conquered infectious diseases. But we saw over, especially in the mid-90s, we saw this resurgence of emerging diseases. And the majority of those emerging diseases actually came from an animal source. If you wanted to learn more about zoonotic diseases and pandemics, you couldn't do much better than reading Spillover a 2012 page-turner by science writer extraordinaire David Quammen. Here's something he wrote then that's always stuck with me and will probably stick with you. The next big and murderous human pandemic will be caused by a new disease. New to humans, anyway. The bug that is responsible will be strange and unfamiliar, and it won't come from outer space. Odds are that the killer pathogen, most likely a virus, will spill over to humans from a non-human animal. He hit the nail right on the head. Again, zoonotic disease specialist Jeff Bender. And so uh, the current experience of COVID-19 does really reflect that, you know, there are reservoirs of different uh, pathogens that are out there, you know, and, and they are intermixing and they are uh, looking for susceptible hosts. And there's many factors that drive that. People are one of those, especially with increasing numbers of people 
increasing congregations of people. So the movement, the global movement of people, also the changes in land use as a result of, you know, a burgeoning population and the changes to the environment. And then also the encroachment on areas previously not habitated by humans, you know, does create a potential opportunities for these spillover events to occur. When you talk to people who study zoonotic diseases like Jeff Bender, or write about them like David Quammen, a phrase you'll often hear in reference to spillovers is this. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. That's important for two reasons. First, it means a spillover is a wake-up call and forces us to ask ourselves, have we woken up? And second, it tests our preparedness and raises a question of how prepared are we? Let's tackle preparedness first. I think we, we failed in a couple regards. Andy Slavitt has worked in both private and public sector health care for decades. He was head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services during President Obama's second term. I think we failed basic preparedness, which is to say, do we have the infrastructure, the protective gear, the ability to contain that you need to have in a pandemic? And then I think we failed in a, in a much more interesting and hopefully unique way, which is that we, at the government level, we sort of, we failed till much, much too late to acknowledge what was starting and to get the machines working. And in a pandemic where you have exponential spread, you, you can't make up for lost time very easily. And that's what happened to us. This brings into sharp focus four realities, four challenges, if you will, that come up again and again as public health emergencies arise and fade away. First, and maybe foremost, is what science writer Ed Yong calls our cycle of panic and neglect. Essentially, it's easy to neglect problems that are not in your backyard. In other words, you'll get serious about your diet and exercise after your first heart attack. It's basic human nature. Second, public health issues are inextricably linked to politics. They're easily diluted, convoluted, and polluted by agendas where health may not be the primary objective. Third, most public health issues are global. Global collaboration would be ideal in solving them. But just because we have a global economy doesn't mean we have a global public health system. We don't. I think global cooperation is a big, giant question mark right now. I think that's going to have to sort its way out. There's one one school of thought which says that countries will get more nationalistic and cooperate less and try to become more self-sufficient. And there's another school of thought which says we can't defeat this unless we defeat this together. And even if we could defeat it in the U.S., uh, we have a role to play in the rest of the world, and we need to play that role. I'm, I'm, I'm the second camp. The fourth big challenge is money. Public health is a long-term investment that can potentially save billions. Pandemic preparedness is a great example. But in the United States in particular, our free market economy rewards rescue medicine, expensive procedures, devices, and medicines. Investment in preventive measures that would decrease our need for such expensive interventions aren't really lucrative and therefore not invested in. Because he's worked in both the private and public sectors of healthcare, Andy Slavitt knows the problem of public health funding well. 
how does public health stop being a stepchild to Congress? People make their cases and line up to Congress for funding, and our private sector industries know how to do quite well, but the people who protect us are, are sort of ignored in that equation. And we'll know we've succeeded when we have you know, $100 billion that we know how to ask for and that the public demands, and we need to start building for that. Each of our major corporations and organizations in America should have a chief public health officer that is watching out for all of the threats and preparations needed at a micro level all across the country. Will that happen now? Uh, don't know. The other thing we don't know is will citizens, businesses, and governments see COVID-19 as a wake-up call? A wake-up call is defined as, quote, something that causes people to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and take action to remedy it, end quote. In the case of pandemic preparedness, that means awareness and acceptance that these spillovers will continue to wreak havoc and that we'll need to be prepared and advance and we can't be reacting on the fly as we have been. I asked Andy Slavitt to comment on that. I really think that, that we will get there if this matters to people in the future. The shape of it, the systems, the people, the technology, the processes, all that stuff can be up for debate and up for improvement. But it won't be sustainable unless it's one of the things that people think matters uh, in their day-to-day -day life. In other words, so much of it boils down to us, you and I, and our families and friends, that public in public health. Will we answer the wake-up call or, once again, hit the snooze button and fall back to sleep? We have a country where we value our freedom. We have a natural distrust of government. We have a consumption society. We want what we want, when we want it, exactly how we want it. And you know, acting for the collective good is something we haven't done in a long, long time here. This is the first time in you know, many people's memory that we had the entire country focused on one thing. And that's an enormous opportunity to get people to think and understand differently our interdependence, shared sacrifice, and, and all these kinds of things that we haven't experienced for a long time. This past weekend, many of us across the country were brought together by something other than COVID-19. Something we celebrate every year that is at once commonplace, but always something very special. Graduations. Although they were strangely remote this year, they still felt unifying. Still a chance to look forward, dream and reminisce a bit, even in uncertain times. And what better way to end this series than to hear from some of those graduates? Here are three women who graduated from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health this past weekend. They are, in the order in which you'll hear them, Emily Friedrich, who earned a master's in healthcare administration and just started co-directing a long-term care facility that's dealing with COVID-19. Stephanie Aliman, whose master's in public health focused on epidemiology and who works at the Minnesota Department of Health. And Dr. Melanie Firestone, whose PhD thesis explored food-borne illnesses and who, appropriately enough, will join the CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Services. Just three voices out of many, but a big part 
of the future of public health. I started my job during this pandemic. So I think it's easy to say that I've never known the old normal. I've only ever really known the new normal, and now we can only move forward from there. So I'm, I'm feeling optimistic, I would say. And one of the things that has really kind of worried me, I think, going forward is that, you know, all of this newfound appreciation is just going to be lip service. And come the new fiscal year, when it's time to fund these programs or fund new positions or maybe even new departments to make sure that going forward, we're more prepared that it's going to, public health is just going to be cut. It's going to continue to be cut. There's been a lot of talk about returning to normal and or adapting to a new normal. And I think that COVID-19 is showing us that it's sort of time to usher in a new era in public health. We've been aware for a long time about health inequities, and we've been making strides to promote health for all. And COVID-19 is really amplifying these inequities and bringing awareness to them. I think it's really an opportunity and a call to action for not just those of us working in public health, but for people more broadly as well. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. You can also subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 22nd, 2020. And the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide is just over 5.1 million. Thanks for listening and take good care of each other. 